0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Graham McDonald on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing
1: great. where did you grow up? In 1954, my great-grandparents bought a vineyard up in uh, Oakville. And uh, so my grandparents were living there when I was a young child. And so I think it was maybe a week after I was born, I spent my first time up there and was there pretty much every couple weeks for my entire life. And right after high school, you got a job in the wine business in that area. Yes. I decided at a young age, I had a great English teacher who when I was talking about the vineyard and going up there and playing in the vines that she said, you should really think about that. So I started to for the first time, this was junior year, so I was uh, 17 years old. So I started calling around trying to see if anybody would stage me for uh, an, a little internship and how'd that we, go? Uh, we we're, were lucky that it worked out because most people were uh, not comfortable with hiring someone who wasn't legally allowed to drink. So. It turned out being my best friend's godfather was willing to take a take a chance. And he had a winery called Elizabeth Spencer, which is in Rutherford. And uh, he hired me to do everything. Most of it, I just sat in the car and asked him questions about what wine tasted like and <laughs> why, why certain wines were a big deal. Obviously, I'd spent time on the internet researching what it was all about. And his uh, winemaker was a guy named Matthew Rorick, who then helped me... Uh, learn a little bit and gave me a half barrel to start practicing with and just all began from there. I couldn't throw the bug at that point.
0: Because Matt Rourke does forlorn hope these days.
1: Yeah. And so uh, Matthew was an incredible, he gave me my first fermentation vessels, which were, I'm pretty sure, two sort of trash cans that he must have gotten at Home Depot. And so I I worked for them for about four or five years, actually, just working my way along the summers as I was uh, going to school. When did you start doing some of those side fermentations? So it really started in 04. So I did two vintages uh, for Spencer Graham and Matthew and deviated into saying that I have to I have to try this for myself. So in 04 was the first small lot fermentation and ended up uh, not going so well. Learned a lesson each year, but it was really by about 2007, 2008, where I really felt like what we were doing was creating something really special. And at that point, 30 gallons doesn't go too far. So I ended up, we either drank most of it or shared it or celebrated the success. And uh, in 2010, we decided to do our first commercial release uh, for our own brand. But 02 is when you graduated from high school and then you were making wine in 04. Yeah. And so that was in my uh, college closet. And it was quite a, a bane of the other roommates who had to deal with fruit flies and all the various maladies of home brewing and home winemaking. Was, it was a mixture between wine and brewing because we realized you could buy the ingredients for beer brewing before you could buy the beer. So uh, since I was about 16, I had been brewing. And you went to UCD. Yes, that was a, sort of an interesting experience. Seemed like the logical transition to go to wine school and uh, study viticulture and enology. I actually uh, didn't realize there was so much chemistry involved and ended up a little in shell shock, having to go through eight quarters of chemistry, ochem, biochem, and uh, in the long run was grateful for it. But as uh, the best way to put it is I ended up unlearning a lot of what they actually taught me there so I could open my mind to make wines that I feel like are more translucent of the property and more interesting. What was the vibe like at Davis at that time? It was a little intense. I feel like the thing that I really didn't get along with was you you walk in there and they tell you're you're part of the best wine school in the world and all these things and then they Like that scene from Top Gun. Exactly. Yeah. Gentlemen, you're the best of the best. That's absolutely how it went, and so I very strongly felt like Was the guy wearing a hat that said Viper? Uh, no, but he was, uh, he was a very soft-spoken, uh, Australian man. So it was, it was much, much more the opposite. I, f- I felt like I was in, in control, but, uh, turns out, uh, the curriculum there is very, very focused and they're sort of against the more natural approach to winemaking. And so as, uh, it was a great thing for me because in retrospect, although I'd spent many years angry at, at having gone through that, I, uh Realized that when when something happens in winemaking, Davis gave me the opportunity to think through and figure out why it happened. And so instead of knowing the solution to a problem and applying it, I could think back and say, "Okay, well, how is this not going to happen again?" Without me having to manipulate the wine. So I really feel like that was an incredible thing. Obviously, it gives people confidence when they're top gunning you and <laughs> telling you to uh, that you're going to be greatest winemaker for the biggest brand ever, and I uh, thought that was kind of interesting. There's a there's a glory in large-scale winemaking, but I realized quite quickly that I wanted to do something with my own hands, and it really uh, changed the way I look at wine going through that education because I was having had some experience in the business. I, I could disagree and sort of mold it around what I was looking for to get out of it.
0: And get done with school, and then you go to Colgan for a harvest.
1: Yeah, so that was uh, through Elizabeth Spencer they were working in in ways with Colgan and the owner thought it would be a great idea for me to see that. And I was actually quite curious myself. It was sort of the tail end of the real cult era where all the dot coming and excitement was around those wines. And the, probably the most interesting thing for me is they have a farmer named David Abreu and he does kind of farming that looks like a garden. You drive by his vineyards and you can be driving 40 miles an hour down Oakville crossroad and you say, Oh, there, look, it's a neighbor vineyard. So I was kind of fascinated by that. I was wrapping my mind around what's the right approach. We obviously have a very old school vineyard, a very classic Napa Valley style, and he was the complete opposite. So I wanted to be in that vineyard and feel what it felt like. What did you see as the differences? So there's a couple different ways that people approach grape growing, obviously. When you're in your house and you have your garden around you, you want it to look perfect. And I think that was that approach. I don't it's probably more gardening than it was agriculture. It was excessive amounts of labor, tractor passes, chemicals even to make things look exactly like they should look. And uh, while that was very fascinating, that was an important step in my understanding of wine, is that sometimes what you perceive as a human of looking perfect, doesn't make the perfect wine or even worse it makes the perfect wine and it doesn't taste complex so that was a uh experience for me and i I had a great time walking through those vines getting a feel for them and in the end realized that it wasn't wasn't my path
0: and you worked at opus one That
1: that was an exciting uh transition i felt like because we had cabernet on our property that i had to keep working at cabernet houses and um Opus uh, had recently purchased quite a big chunk of the Tokelon Vineyard uh, next door to my family's property. And uh, And where you live today. And where where I live in my little cottage, which you've been to. And uh, so I wanted to see what was in the soil. I wanted to be part of the development process. They were uh, also getting interested in trying various aspects of their vineyard in biodynamic farming, which was obviously an easy thing for me to jump into. I'd only worked in conventional places besides our family stuff at this point. So I was, that was an easy, easy solution for me to choose. And what did
0: you pick up from that in terms of the biodynamic
1: farming and the way that they handled some of the vineyards that are right next door to yours? It was mind blowing. I really enjoyed it. I, uh, it opened my mind up. Obviously I was, I was thinking at Colgan about different ways of growing grapes and, uh, when I saw that approach, I was like, oh my gosh, this is totally different. And so, I got all of Rudolf Steiner's books and read through and understood as much as I absolutely could. And I really felt like there were some amazing parts of it that got me really excited about doing stuff in our vineyard. I was maybe more intrigued by the the crystals and the, the various celestial movements and the effect of those various things on winemaking and the actual practical and, and pragmatic approach was little different than what i was used to i i feel like a lot of the sprays that we did with dust and, and and the horns and various things were a little bit more effort in the vineyard than i wanted to do unless it was necessary so i actually pulled various pieces out of that without fully deciding that we had to follow the biodynamic protocol uh, i think that's I, I love biodynamics don't get me wrong but uh it's very structured and i i felt like i needed to get from various philosophies in order to create something unique which is something that I I feel is important for a project like ours
0: because you've also had an engagement with the one-star revolution
1: oh yeah yeah no I uh, it was actually recommended to me by Christopher Howell who's the winemaker at cane vineyards up on uh, the top of spring mountain and uh, I had met him when I first got interested in wine I called everyone I knew who had any affiliation with it and asked to have meetings and so I felt like I was a non-threatening, eighteen-year-old, so people would be willing to see me and not not feel like they had to give me a job. And so one of those was with Christopher House. So and when I met him, about uh, re met him six or seven years later, he this is the one thing he said to me He said I've got a good book for you to read. And I ended up reading it in a, about a week and got back saw him again and mentioned that. And he goes oh, I didn't I didn't know I've told this to numerous people. Nobody's ever actually read the book. So I'm really excited that you did. And uh, that was. A life changing moment for me. If there's anything that we apply more to our brand, it, it's Mansonobu Fukuoka and the one straw revolution, His full, various parts of his philosophy. And how is that implemented for you? So it, it's interesting because he's actually a rice and citrus farmer, was uh, before he passed, but he, uh, he had a really unique approach that resonated with how I feel about not only winemaking, but grape growing, which is hands off. It's his, his term was do nothing farming, only the bare minimum so that you could. Uh, I loved, loved his comment that it's important for farmers to be writing haiku because farmers are so busy now that they don't have the time to create art. And so I thought that was a wonderful idea and way to put it. So I ended up when I uh, was getting interested in taking over the farming aspect of our family's and obviously I, I'd actually never worked full time for a vineyard management company, which looking back on that. I'm really happy that I never did because it didn't jade my mind until make me nervous about doing things a certain way. And uh, so we, we ended up having a philosophical disagreement with our current vineyard management company. So
0: your family has
1: holdings and they're farmed
0: by an outside vineyard manager.
1: Yeah. Prior to me taking over, that's the way most a lot, lot of vineyards in the Napa Valley work. It's easier to push off the liabilities of having people to someone else who's going to manage that and paying them, uh, some high dollar rate to take care of it. But unfortunately for our family, the first thing our vineyard management company did when this is when I was in college is they came into our 60 year old block that was planted by my great grandparents, uh, the first vines that were on the property after prohibition. And, uh, they started taking vines out because as a vineyard management company, working in the vineyard and doing stuff is how you make you're living. So you always want to be busy. You can't just sort of let things be. So I uh, actually drove back from school and said that that's not going to happen. This block is staying in and uh, leave it alone. So uh, that sort of was the impetus for me slowly taking over the, I proposed the question initially to the family. I said, well, this is something I'm interested in. and
0: Because it's more than just you and your parents. It's like there's multiple...
1: Yeah. So our structure, it's, it obviously passed to our grandmother and uh, her husband. And then I have two aunts and uh, my mother and uh, me and my brother are actually the only grandchildren. So I brought him in uh, to be part of this with me. So it could be a complete agreement for the legacy and the generations to come out of the property.
0: For a long time, the fruit had been sold.
1: Yeah. So we, we have an amazing uh, sort of history of fruit sales on our property. And so it was initially prior to our family, as I'm doing the historical research on the vineyard, which is an important part for me to understanding the legacy and the genealogy of the land. And uh, so in the 1800s, the the grapes all went into a winery called Tokalon, which was the original Tokalon with a proprietor. And it was the most fa- one of the most famous wines, not only in the US, but probably the world at the time, winning uh, gold medals at the World Fairs, which was the equivalent of a a grand critical score these days and that's back when crab ran the show exactly and uh so he really changed he built oakville he donated the land for the train station which legitimized the town and he uh, decided that he wanted to make the best wine possible he had a quote that i love about defining Tokalon. he said Tokalon means the beautiful or the highest good but i try to make it mean the boss vineyard and uh it was funny because when the name was resurrected, not only by our family and, and Robert Mandavi, but ev- everyone involved in the Mandavi system really resurrected that brand. And uh, it was, Bob made a quote that was similar. He said, "When he, in Harvest of Joy, when he came in, and saw Tokalon for the first time and heard the name and heard the meaning, he said, to me, it simply meant the best. And so that's what attracted him there as well. And so back to our fruit sales. So it went to crab initially, and, uh,
0: but back then it was not just Cabernet; it was all kinds
1: of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I, so I actually looked it up, and it was. There, Cabernet was very, very rare back in those days. Crab was making one of the first well-regarded Cabernets, and it was. Uh, I had a tasting note from 1882 that I found in my research, which is fantastic. And uh, they don't do. They didn't talk about the blueberries and whatever that they do now. It was acid, agreeable, flavor great potential excellent. So, that was the... It's like
0: uh, Tasting Notes by Hagar. Yeah, e- exactly. <laughs> <It's> like,
1: <laughs> very uh, very serious and, and succinct. And uh, the um, the wonderful thing about his Cabernet is it, was, it caused a stir. And uh, there was a very well-known store in Washington, D.C., which I love that when it was described in one of the articles, was very good in the aristocratic circles. And so, it had a great, great connection to politicians and that in those days was a huge source of publicity. And so, uh, he, he called uh, Crab's on historical. And so, I thought that was a significant moment in the evolution. But our, our vineyard was actually planted to Zinfandel, Sauvignon Vert, Riesling, and I think there was some Mondoos uh, or Rafasco. There's a little bit of controversy whether those are the same thing.
0: Because your family holdings now are a portion of what would have been the larger crab holdings.
1: Yeah. And so, we ended up not even realizing that it was something that's been discovered. One, our great uncle started the research into that. He was the first Tokelon historian and I alluded to his involvement uh, with the resurrection when the Mandavis decided to do it. Is He was supplying the history and uh, encouraging Bob for many years saying this is such an important piece of, of the puzzle in the Napa Valley that we need to do something about it. And of course, Bob then takes it to the next level, and when he actually does something, it made made a big difference. But it's—I was actually in interviewing people and trying to figure out the lineage of that process. I was talking to Daryl Cordy, who has a place called Cordy Brothers in Sacramento, a very well-known uh, grocery store, and he was saying he was taking growers on trips back in the '70s, and one of the trips included our great uncle and the Mandavi family, and they went to all the great vineyards of of the world. And they were in Germany, they were in France, they went all over the place. And Daryl turned to turned to Bob and Tim and said, you guys know you're part of this historic tokelon vineyard. This is a really exciting thing. You should consider doing something about it. And they had never heard of the, heard of the name before. And then our great uncle said, I, I know what that is. And so that's what Daryl sort of teed me off to the involvement and the importance of following the history and understanding it
0: so it was part of crab's
1: holdings and then prohibition came and the grapes were uprooted yeah that was uh hard times on on everyone in the valley for tokalon especially the crab died in 1899 so he wasn't physically involved with the winery anymore but the churchill family who was his bankers took over and and were keeping the name going and his wine crab's winemaker was actually still the winemaker during that era so they maintained the quality and was very well known. Our property through my research, I realized in about 1890, 1895 was ripped out. And that was because of phylloxera, the UC Davis experiment station, which is the premier land for university agricultural experiment station, uh, is located next to us. And they were doing actively researching phylloxera and what, what we could do to use resistant stock. And uh, But in, inevitably, a lot a lot of vineyards were ripped out. Ours was actually, I have a picture of Tokelon from about that era, and you could see ours was reverted to hay. (laughs) So obviously grapes were much more of a commodity then. It wasn't like now where you have no choice, you plant grapes. And um, so Tokelon retains some of the plantings, but it shrunk dramatically. And then as soon as prohibition came, that was the the end of uh, a lot of places. And so Tokelon, I was following the BATF records and they actually ended up having the wine just sitting in tanks, basically waiting, I think, for Prohibition to end. Uh, they got in trouble, as did places like Farniente, for then bootlegging and selling various things to people. And so essentially it got shut down. And when Prohibition finally ended, it was only a couple years later that the actual winery burned to the ground. And so kind of the wonderful thing about Crab is he, he said... it a fancy cellar with a nice stone cellar that looks very beautiful, doesn't make your wine better, which was an idea back then that you had to have the most grandiose facility. And then of course you'll get all the, get all the credit you you desire. Uh, so he really decided that and then built it out of Redwood. And so when the fire came, it was all insulated with straw and uh, the wineries, there's no evidence that it exists anymore. And that's part of why it was so hard. Nobody knew about it in the fifties and uh, 60s when the mandavis came in because there was no evidence that the winery was there. It was just a sort of a myth at that point.
0: So it was a complete generational rise and fall, almost like absolutely Greeks before the Romans or something like that.
1: Yeah, it was it was definitely epic, and uh, it literally had such highs. And then as soon as prohibition came, the valley hit a low. And I was uh, looking through pictures, you could actually actually remember that. Farniente was abandoned, so that was a very which is nearby. It's not yeah, that far. Yeah, Stelling Vineyard, e- exactly. Though. And so Martin Stelling actually bought we we that's who we bought our property from. He he passed away uh, unfortunately prematurely, but he brought the idea of varietal wines back. And so he planted varieties that he thought were high quality because back then they would say this is the Tokolon Burgundy or this is the Tokolon Chablis. More as a brand name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was the, it was Tokalon and Chablis on the label. That's all there was. So Martin Stelling decided that we needed to plant varieties that you could put on the label. And so he was replanting Tokelon at the time that our family purchased a piece. Our, our vineyard had actually in about 1915 been converted to cherries. And so one of the amazing things about that is there's the family that converted it and bought this section, built a palatial mansion, which is now a, a monastery for the carmelite order and uh, they even offered the property to president calvin coolidge as a summer white house in the old days and he chose instead to go to south dakota which just is an ev- evidence of kind of where that napa valley wasn't as prestigious as now nowadays we oh that's a crazy choice but
0: wine uh, could have been a much bigger thing at the white house ceremonies you know?
1: exactly and so yeah and so when our family came there we uh there's a farm workers house that was part of that monastery property. And our great grandparents had been driving up and down the Napa Valley. They had a ranching operation in Lake County and, uh, they fell in love with the Valley. It was cooler. It was quaint. It was kind of the the way they described it later on our grandparents. It was kind of like Knights Valley 10 years ago or something. It was a rural destination place. And they fell in love with this, with this farm workers house from part of the original, uh, Doak Mansion, as it was called, now the Carmelite Monastery. And so they offered to buy it from the uh, Martin Stelling's wife. And she said, that would be fine. And then came back to him and said, you know what, I need to get rid of land. We've got too much land to deal with. Like if you want the house, you have to take acreage, which were just the cherries were just being removed. And that, of course, our family didn't thought that would be a terrible investment. Grapes grapes back then was was a terrible investment. So they argued, and then eventually the Mrs. Stelling put her foot down, and so we bought that and about 35 acres adjacent to the house. And eventually, that got divided in half between what's now Detail and you. Yes, and so uh, the my grandmother and her brother inherited the property, and so her brother and my grandfather ended up running it. And it was it sort of reminds me of of the Mandavi story in many ways, which we were also in the in the thick of during Bob and Peter. Uh, is that our great-uncle was an amazing historian, amazing guy, and he was one of the first people that was thinking about the philosophy of grape growing back then. So, like, one of the best things I've ever found in my research was someone remembered a quote from Bob Mondavi, and he said he referred to our family as the best grape growers in the Napa Valley, which is why he wanted to have a relationship with us. And I believe that was because our great-uncle was traveling the world saying, this is, these are what great vineyards look like. Let's implement that here. And so that was in those days novel. That was an incredible idea. And so the idea that winemaking began in the vineyard, not the winery was sort of what they were trying to, trying to develop. And then our grandfather was meticulous. He was the, I think that's where I inherited my attention to detail. And so when you combine the two of those, it was an amazing force. And so they did a lot of really positive things and then turns out that they uh, they were both incredibly opinionated strong-willed people as as me, me and my brother are as well but uh to keep them sane they cut the vineyard in half and our family got the cabernet sauvignon half and our second cousins got the cabernet franc and that's detail yes exactly
0: So McDonald had Cabernet Sauvignon planted at different areas and different blocks and it was being sold to the Charles Krug winery. Exactly. And
1: when then that changed and what happened? So the interesting part is sort of how it began as well. We had slated to sell the grapes to Beaulieu and be part of that project. They were most of old Tokalon was supplying Beaulieu in that expansion during the forties and fifties and, uh, my grandfather went to went to them and wanted to discuss the grape price because in those days we you get paid and it probably doesn't cover the expenses so it was sort of a luxury thing as, as some some cases that's still the same in the napa valley but uh, so he went in there and wanted to negotiate a little bit better price and they got frustrated and said you know what We're, we'll go all estate like you can figure it out yourself so none of the grapes actually may ever made it to you so the first vintages off of the property we heard Bob Mondavi was interested for his family wines at Charles Krug. So he came over and, and had a discussion with our family and they liked him a lot. He was obviously incredibly charismatic and quite an interest. And so what our uh, our great uncle was the family lawyer. So he put together a contract with Bob for three years at a set price to sell the first three vintages of wine. I uh, looked up in his memoirs and that was for $165 a ton, which is An incredible number compared to what great prices are nowadays in the Napa Valley. And uh, so that very first year of the contract, there was a shortage of supply in the valley and the market value jumped and we're kicking ourselves thinking, oh, it's pretty naive to get into the great business and sign a contract like that because now we're getting paid less than it was worth. It went up to, I think it was like $200 a ton. So we get a check in the mail for $200 a ton. And the next year, exact same thing happens. Get another check hire totally irrelevant of the agreement so by the third year our great uncle as, as we were told goes into bob's office and rips up the contract in front of him and he was a huge six foot eight incredibly intimidating german descent man and t- he turns to bob and says bob we don't need a contract if you just a handshake so for 50 years that's where we sold our wine and it was all based on a handshake we never did a contract and uh, never sold to anyone else
0: and Bob eventually started his own winery, and you sold to him there too,
1: yeah, so that was as I alluded the we had the we were right in the between him him and Peter and in their infamous feud, and uh, the way our family decided to handle that because both brothers wanted one uh, of the grapes is uh, they referred to it as the Solomon like divide, so they cut the vineyard in half, gave the reds to Bob and the whites to Peter, and that lasted maybe four or five years. But Bob eroded it pretty quickly. By every year, he'd bump up the great price a little bit. And uh, it came to the point where our sales to Krug wasn't covering the expenses. And uh, so we went in to say, what can we do? Bob pays this. Can we go up there? And uh, uh, Peter exploded. It was, And again, like I mentioned, our six foot seven, six foot eight uh, great uncle was not someone to be toiled with. So they ended up parting ways. And, uh, and it all went to Bob ever since. The bins used to show up and they said tokelon on them. That was interesting because that's also how I got interested in this and found out as I was looking through our weight tags one day and said, Oh, this is tokelon. What is what does that mean? What's and I remember during this this all kind of started around the time when Andy Beckstoffer challenged the Mandavi trademark. And I noticed it first in a contract when we were selling grapes and I was just getting interested in wine. We realized That in the contract with Mondavi, they wanted to say, okay, we'll buy the grapes, but you can't put Tokelon on your wine labels if you deal with it or nobody else can use this name. So they're eventually saying, you're part of this, but please don't do what's already happened. And so that was a sort of an interesting time. We're kind of like, okay, that's fine. We've never complained about before. And again, when Tokelon was resurrected, it wasn't a big deal. Like It was Bob's thing and it was the history of the property and it was very exciting, but it didn't mean what it does now. It's now a very contested, very big brand type marketing thing. And uh, back then it was much more relaxed. So I actually, when I started my research and figuring this out, it was kind of, oh my gosh, like we're in the middle of this feud again. And how is this going to turn out? And it's also kind of what is exciting about about our vineyards. We're in the middle. We have the historical ties, not only to the old Tokalon, but to Bob's history and our grapes since the Res- Mandavi Reserve and the Tokalon bottlings were done from Mandavi have been part of that, so it's really we're all tied into that history and makes me excited how the evolution of that vineyard will will continue.
0: So you talked to your own family about taking over the vineyard management. How did
1: that conversation occur? I've always been uh, on the ambitious side. I was ready to commit even before I had had any real experience other than school, and so it didn't it didn't go very well. <laughs> they uh, they basically said no. They said, we don't want the liability. We're, we'll figure out something. We'll, we'll make it happen. So I've never taken no very well. And so what I did is I started putting together a vineyard management company. So I actually, from the Mandavi Winery, every year when they'd sell a piece of equipment for inexpensive prices, I would, I would buy it. So I bought tractors, I bought discs, I bought uh, cedars, and some of these things I'd have to modify. So I had to learn how to how to weld and to make a broadcast seed or a drill seeder and uh so eventually i got to the point where i i knew what the family was being charged for the vineyard management company i put together a uh, budget that i knew was a couple thousand dollars below what they were paying and uh, bought quickbooks and sent them a budget and basically they said okay we'll give it a shot and that was the the biggest biggest change in my life and the best best decision i've ever made So what are the holdings that you farm? So I farm uh, 15 acres, and it's, our family has three or four different age blocks, but uh, many different pieces within there. There's, we're right at the base of the Oakville alluvial fan, and that's where all the gravel and what makes great Napa Valley wines exists. And so we're right at the pinnacle of that. So it's the most gravelly piece of all of Toclon. It's the part that comes off the Mayakamas. Exactly. Yeah. Right at the base of the hill there, it's actually got a five percent slope because of all the runoff so if you imagine a that at one point all those canyons were full of sediment and all that has been washed down into our vineyard over time so we had a part of my discovering and learning more about the property when had a, a soil scientist come by and do pits in the vineyard back in 04 and they were kind enough to give me all the reports and so i was looking at our vineyard compared to everything else around us and i started to realize after the first couple feet of topsoil that It's 90% gravel by volume down as far as they could dig, so 10 plus feet, probably 20, 30 feet. And so that's obviously really exciting when you have rocks in your vineyard. That's that's a fun, exciting time. Uh, The difference between our rocks is it's crushed gravel. So if you put it in your hand, when you're walking over it, it looks like soil. Then you put it in your hand and you realize it's all little pea gravels. And uh, the special aspect of that is that a big rock and a big rock together leave a space for loam or clay or something in between. So this really fine crushed material means very little soil. And so the roots really have to travel down in order to find sustenance.
0: It's planted
1: in the old fashioned distance, wider rows. Yeah, absolutely. We're a, we're a throwback vineyard. And I, I credit that with just having it being a family property. Like it's not, doesn't make sense every 20 years to reinvest in replanting so we also were very sentimental about our old vines a lot of that's due to my grandfather i was mentioning his attention to detail bob also used to say that yet not only were they the best grape growers but he had the best looking vineyard in the napa valley because he actually as a vine died, he replace it or do stuff like that which again was not very common uh so what ended up happening is his attention to detail basically made the vineyard so healthy that 60 40 and 20 years later all those blocks are doing doing fantastic. And uh, I'm really grateful for that because he he prepared us in order to do what we're doing with a mature vineyard, not a uh, a new project.
0: So that's the farming side. And then on the winemaking side, after you worked for Opus, you ended up working with Abe Scharner.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that was uh, sort of one of those revelations again. You have the Fukuoka book and then you have the book of Abe <laughs> and uh, he really uh, changed the way I thought about wine the, the way I ended up there is one of my best friends in the valley is Alex Consgard whose family has the Consgard winery and him and John I was after Opus I was supposed to go work at a uh, Chateau Palmer in Margot and so I was really excited and wanted to go work abroad and uh, I couldn't figure out a visa I couldn't for the life of me understand how people get work over there and eventually you just you just go and you, you do it and I didn't know that. So that didn't work out, and John uh, eventually told me he after that he introduced me to Abe along with Alex, and then John later told me that he thought I was going to be too uptight if I continued to work at these Napa cab places, and so we needed to loosen it up a bit. Because
0: John's kind of a old school cowboy in a way. Oh when yeah, when it comes yeah. to winemaking. Yeah,
1: ab- absolutely. That's uh, that's actually how I've heard him describe it before. We're cowboys up here, and I love that. It was uh, sort of as I realized my entire career, sort of every part of where I've worked, when you come to Consgard, it's the complete package. Like, so it's got the philosophy and and, the experimentation of the Scolium project. It's got the cult of the Colgan. It's got the uh, tradition of the opus. And I thought that was a wonderful sort of accumulation of all that. But back to Abe, he was a mentor because he basically opened my mind to what could be done with wine. I'm not exaggerating in the least when I say that everything they taught us at school Abe did the exact opposite. And so, every single step of the way, you're thinking, oh my God, how, are, how is this going to happen? Is this going to work? Are we going to ruin the wine or what happens? And it taught me that that's not the way wine works. And it, as a young, I will always be a student of wine, but as a young person, having that experience is a game changer. You get so influenced by the places you work when you're young.
0: So, what were some of the specifics that were different at Scolium than what have been at some of the other places you'd worked previously?
1: So there's so many, but the the most important one that I realized was um, the way you clean things. So in a normal winery, you sanitize, you do probably for a gallon of wine, you use 10 gallons of water, something ridiculous. And you do a soap, You then you rinse, then you do a, a something to clean up the soap, then you rinse, then you do a sanitizer, and then you rinse. And uh, at Scolium, we just used cold water, which is basically the all you're doing is just making yourself feel better and all the microflora and everything is still alive and growing. And uh, that was unbelievable. Nobody, I've, I've still haven't found besides the cons guards in some cases, anybody who does that. And it was just so shocking and scary. And uh, it turned out to be be totally fine. Everything worked. And uh, you really tried to understand better about what was going on within your winery. Abe's theories, obviously, you, you grew up in those traditional wineries and they say, "Oh, it's the vineyard, and what we—that's thats what's important." And Abe really started the philosophies like man's effect on the wine is also significant. Even if they're saying it's only the vineyard, that's not true because the moment they decide to do something in the winery, that has a has an effect. And so it was a wonderful sort of philosophical opening from me coming from a science background, and where now I'm addicted to philosophy. I can't. I think that's the most important part about learning about taking the next step in winemaking.
0: Walk me through the progression. in oh four, you're making wine in your closet in Davis, and
1: then it sounds like at first you were only getting a small amount of grapes. What yeah. happened next? So the uh, again, like as you can tell from our, our the way we got into the vineyard management, nothing our families, I love it, but they make us earn everything. We're given the opportunity to buy the grapes, but we pay whatever anybody else pays. So that's why it started so small. It was literally my sweat equity in order to get that half ton. I did sweat equity driving the tractor in the vineyard uh, for the vineyard management company, up to about two tons of grapes, and then uh, we started writing checks, which was a incredibly stressful and scary time. We actually, when we released our ten, we wrote a grape check to the family that we couldn't afford. Me and my me and my brother said, "This is it. We better sell the wine." So we uh, put the wine up for sale and and sold it, and now we're now we're moving.
0: Because at some point you're making red wine and you have to age it before you can sell it.
1: Absolutely. yeah. I I really believe our approach to winemaking and our our vineyard in general wants to make ageable wines. We had a, a home brew from 78 the other day that still had life left and was delicious. And so I really never bought into the idea. Part of the romanticism of wine is having something that you can open on your kid's 21st birthday or in the case of very powerful experience in my life, was a friend of mine in uh, high school. We went over to her house and her father pulled me aside and said, oh, I've got a special wine I want to show you. And on his counter, he had his six special bottles and pulls it out. And so mid-80s premier crew from Bordeaux. And uh, he turns to me and goes, "Your Nicole was conceived on this bottle. This is the last one from the case. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, my God, that's the she turns bright red, apparently. (laughs) And I said, that's the best story I've ever heard. So those kinds of things are really important to me. And uh, I want people to be able to say, well, we're gonna open this on our kid's 21st birthday and have a great time drinking it when he doesn't understand it or something like that. I just love, love the way wine works like that. So we really approached winemaking and wanna make ageable wines. And between 04 and 10, what we did is we experimented with style. We felt like anybody who says that they can just walk into a vineyard, make a wine, and it's all of a sudden a great wine is, is kind of exaggerating. It uh, really takes many, many years to understand your vineyard, and you you can get lucky, but we wanted to practice, and so stylistically, we tried everything that we thought of: high ripeness, low ripeness, high oak, no oak, natural, non-natural, and basically, we concluded that we loved the the natural approach. It felt the most true to the vineyard, and uh, everything else needed to be in balance. It didn't. It shouldn't be excessively ripe, which was the style at the time, and working those places, you know how to make those wines. So it's obviously a huge temptation to say, okay, we could be very successful monetarily and uh, make one of these, but it just didn't feel right. And so that's also why we decided in 10, when we felt like we got a vintage that defined us, which was the most ageable wine I've ever made, we decided to release it. And so
0: you release it, and
1: how many cases did you release? Uh, It was 92 cases, so three barrels approximately. And how long did it take you to sell that? Well, so we, we weren't expecting much and obviously after doing this for so many years, you, you build a website and I'd, been, I'd started that in high school and finally it got finished uh, <laughs> in about 2012. But uh, we were signing people up, taking names. We put it up on the internet for direct sales and we, we, we approached our brand. We were in such a neighborhood of big business that we wanted to be perceived as what we are, which is genuine and uh, sort of the old school and so we made a cognizant decision not to market our wine besides word of mouth and so we we're expecting everything to take a long time but thanks to the internet everything happens pretty quickly and so we we put the wine up for sale and uh, i'm sitting there on my home computer my brother's visiting his girlfriend in mississippi and we're watching the orders come in and it's very exciting okay it's 12 orders in the first minute that's great people were waiting that's exciting and then uh in less than 20 minutes it was all gone and the orders kept coming in so we had to shut down the website and my brother said he got 200 angry emails that he individually responded to each person and whatever we could sold get got him a bottle whatever whatever we could we had a one amazing guy who was a doctor who was complaining on the on the internet that he was revascularating a diabetic's leg at the time of the release and that he missed out and uh and that it's as long as he felt like what he was doing was the right thing, which I totally agree with. Uh, so people like that, we reached out to and said, "Well, I'm glad you made the right choice. We'll get some wine to you."
0: So 2010 was the first public
1: release, and then you just released the 11. How are those two the same, and how are they different? I, I love all my children, so I can't. I, I don't play play favorites, but they're vastly different. Just the 11 vintage in Napa was was a long, long, cool growing season. The 10 was the first time I felt like I knew really strongly what I was doing in the vineyard. Cause I made the first executive decision. This was still the vineyard management company managing it, but I decided the idea of stripping all the leaves off of the, the morning side of the vine was wrong, felt wrong. It looked wrong. So I said, that's not how we're going to do it anymore. Actually. The reason behind that is I started to taste older wines from the family home winemaking from the sixties, seventies. And, uh you could tell that they were still so young, but it's because they had pyrazines, which is like the classic cabernet flavor that uh, is somewhat rare in, in Napa Valley wines these days. That kind of green character. Yeah, and and that's part of that compound was more stable than the fruit, and so a lot of the longevity of the wines were built on that. And so our family wines that were picked they were twelve percent alcohol, and they still tasted like sort of like beanie and minty and all that stuff. And I remember one person in the family said, this is exactly the same flavors as it was when it was bottled. So I was fascinated with that. So when you open up the vines and let the uh, sun in, it degrades that compound. And so I felt like that was the wrong thing to do. And not that I'm taking it too far back to the extreme. It's more of a balance. But in our wines now, it turns into more of like the black olive. And I think it's more minerally and and exciting. And it's also going to make the wines age longer.
0: Because you do have a cellar where your family has stock back vintages of the Charles Krug Shenon that you Mm -hmm. helped contribute grapes to, and then also Cabernet wines off your own property, and even
1: blends with the Isley property. Absolutely. And that's sort of exciting. So I didn't mention before, but when we first planted vineyard, it was Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Chenin Blanc, and Johannesburg Riesling. And those were the exciting varieties back in, in the 50s. And so pretty much the first cult wine to come out of the Napa Valley was the off dry Krug Chenin Blanc. And it was crazy. Like people lined up out the door and it was, it was a huge, huge deal. It was kind of like white Zin before white Zen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Same. We have some of that in the cellar too. I was <laughs> thinking I have to give it to the Tegan and Turley. Cause, uh, we found some 85 Sutter home white Zin that's sitting down there. It smells and tastes like potpourri at this point, but it's a, a historical fun thing to have. And, uh, yeah. And the Isley's, uh, what I realized is doing this research is that all the connections to old Napa Valley and nobody thought of it as being important at the time. But I mean, we're, one of the trips I went on when I was 18 to talk to people that we knew was the McCrays from Stony Hill Vineyard. And uh, they mentioned that our grandparents were babysitting them when their parents were building the property to make, give them time to actually get stuff done.
0: When their parents were building Stony Hill. Yes.
1: And then uh, in the case of the Isleys, Milton Barbara were Epic. Uh, there was an epic home brewer that had an association with Mandavi named Norman Minnie, and uh, him and our family and the Isleys were doing homebrew together. And he thought it would be a great idea to blend the two vineyards together. So I, I haven't. F- I've seen pictures of the bottles. I haven't found any in our cellar, but I've been on the mad search for the. So it's probably 50 pretty 50. good then. I, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm imagining it's, all, it's quite quite amazing. It's all been
0: drunk. It was probably a tasty yeah. beverage.
1: We had a single bottle of the Isleys home wine, their personal home wine left in the cellar that got consumed at a party that I wasn't attending most recently. So that was pretty tragic. But uh, <laughs> Gotta show up to more parties. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I felt like that was a, a huge fail on my part.
0: So what is the protocol for making the Cabernet that you make today? It's 100% cab, comes from a parcel of your family's vineyards in the Tokalon historical site of Oakville. But once the grapes hit the door, what do you do with them?
1: I've been trying various things and it's always adaptive. I don't, I don't stick to a recipe. I like to make any decision sort of based on how I feel. And one of the things that I got excited about our vineyard is power and intensity and that's the gravel. And it's, uh, it's always been known as that within the Mandavi program. It was the way they described it when I was, uh, asking them questions was they used to be able to put a couple drops of our wine in any other blend and completely change it. And uh, so I said, well, n- don't do that again, because I just want it to go into your best wines and to hopefully be perceived as such. So we bring it in and we don't crush the berries. That's something that we've sort of come to realize is that part of controlling the power is not to break it up and macerate and get over, uh, zealous about getting everything out of the grapes. That's probably our biggest difference from other people. Everybody's max extraction these days, and one of the biggest things that's popular right now is the use of enzymes in order to get really inky, dark wines. And I just fundamentally had a hard time accepting that that's the right way to do it. And I feel like looking in the wines, you can feel it. It takes the wine from feeling like a beverage and having a lightness in the palate to being more of like that biting into a piece of pie. Like it gives you that sort of mid palate extraction, which I think is less refreshing. Uh, So we don't crush anything. I usually let it sit. 4 or 5 days just to for the natural yeast to start building up and uh, we let it ferment naturally. I do you, you do like a cold maceration to let the yeast Yeah, I don't get. think it does anything for extraction. I just think it's some like if you start try to start it right away by warming it or something it's I don't think it's the yeast are ready. They need time to build up. If I remember from school to, they tried to measure how much actual Saccharomyces cerevisiae which is the yeast that ferments the actual fermentation is present in the grapes when it comes in to the tank. And there was like one cell. And so it was basically like, okay, they need time to procreate and to build up. So that's why I like that. And it's usually that happens naturally just because the fruit comes in cold. Uh, So it's not an untraditional technique at all. I do all the work myself. That's prevalent in the vineyard as well as the winery, because I feel like if you have the passion, you have to do all your own work you can if unless someone has equally amount of passion to you which I doubt I'll ever be able to be able to find you need to impart that otherwise uh, your wine won't
0: but it's interesting good. to carry it all the way through because a lot of people in California no matter whether they're part of old guard California or whether they're new California they do one or the other you know Absolutely. they do wine making or they do grape growing and if they do the grape growing they might give it to the custom crush with a protocol but they don't so much handle the wine or they handle the wine, but they buy in the grapes from somebody else who does the farming.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the biggest problems in the industry is I I noticed that. And I always felt naked when I was just in the winery. It's, I, it's kind of like if you're, and and as a, as a grape, I consider myself a grape grower and the winemaking is, is supplemental to that. Cause it's like, if you send your kids off to college and you never want to see them again, that's essentially how these companies are built. And I feel like you have to parent it all the way through. And, uh, so that's really been the been the key. We uh taking over the vineyard, you just learn every vine, you know, I know where the one white vine is in our vineyard, I know where the one table grape is and you just learn so much more and it makes you so much better at what you do and you realize if you have that disconnect, people, the miscommunications happen, people don't understand their vineyards, they neglect their vineyards or the idea like our family was thinking is that the winemaking starts in the vineyard, which people like to talk about now. But to actually practice it is a different thing. That that requires being on both sides of the of the line.
0: And what about irrigation?
1: So that's a, a another thing where I've sort of differentiated our management practices is we were traditionally always dry farmed. We're sort of on the frontier of what can be dry farmed just because it's so gravelly. But more than, I'd say, three quarters of our vineyard was dry farmed for most of its life and then converted to irrigation in 2000. And the reason for that was the tonnage kept going lower and lower. And so we were getting about a ton per acre off of our vineyard, which as soon as irrigation was implemented, everyone else is getting four tons, five tons, even six tons is an uncommon. Uh, So the prices in the valley reflect the irrigated value. So our family said, oh, no, what can we do? We don't want to take out these vines. And so uh, one of the Mondavi, Mondavi was actually uh, managing at the time, They put in subsurface irrigation in the middle of the row, underground two feet. So like the vines have to work to get to it, but it is being irrigated and sustains a ton and a half per acre in some great years, two tons, great years for quantity. And uh, that was something that that was quite interesting. And so my idea is the less, obviously, the less you do in the vineyard from a human hand, the more... Expression you're actually gonna you get from the site, and so dry farming is incredibly fascinating from that standpoint. It's the most natural way to reflect the vintage, the site, everything, and that's that's how I got to know Tegan, just being fac- Tegan Pasolacqua, truly uh, being so fascinated by that style. And it, it's in me. It's my grandparents and great grandparents did it that way, but unfortunately, because the interest in managing the vineyard skipped a generation, it didn't get passed as, as as succinctly. So I I feel very strongly that that's a great thing. So I actually converted various of our blocks back to dry farming. Uh, I started with our 60-year-old section, which I felt like was starting to show more of the disease symptoms and various things that happens as we get older. And um, it was incredibly surprising because I turned it off in 13 for the first time completely, which was a terrible drought year, and everybody's going crazy, and the vines did better than they've ever done before. All the disease symptoms decreased because the roots instead of hanging out in the first couple feet of soil, all dove back down to where they where they used to be. And uh, I think it's such a good thing. But balance is, like we have a 20-year-old, our youngest vines are 20, and uh, we still have to irrigate them. They're just not, it's taking less and less every year. But um, the way I irrigate, which is also a little bit on the wild side, is we only water once the fruit actually, like once vines start to necrose fruit. So when it, aborts a cluster essentially is what happens. And it dries up and turns to raisins. Uh, that's the plant telling me that it needs water in order to carry the fruit that it has. And so I'll irrigate after I see that, but it's nobody in the Valley does makes decisions like that. Everything's too conservative. And, uh, that really, I think differentiates us and just shows that you can have acceptable loss in a vineyard and still, and probably make better wine because of it. So
0: cold soak, get the natural yeast population going, and then what happens next in the one?
1: Uh, so I, I start mixing it, and I, I'm usually mixing it two, three times a day. It depends on tasting it and how you feel. And again, it's not formulaic in, in any way. And our fermentations go pretty quickly, so we actually don't mix the volumes of the tanks very much uh, compared to more normal people, it's maybe a third of the amount of actual mixing. By which you mean
0: you don't do a lot of pumping over
1: yeah we'll, we'll we'll pump it over during that time but it's not a lot the way you measure it you can say 20 minutes but if you have a big tank that means something totally different so it's uh, by volume so we mix the volumes of the tank very few times and one of the scary things about that again is talking about the current style for extraction and and uh we feel like we have tons of that but when our grapes come out after the fermentation process we do a 30 day ish extended maceration and when you take the grapes out they're still black like so you're like oh my gosh is a, did i d- do my job efficiently but then you look at the wine the wine's black too so i feel very confident but every everywhere else I'd, I'd ever worked except scolium didn't follow this protocol exactly but when the fruit's done fermenting it's basically pink uh so you've gotten everything out of that berry and uh what we realized is that you don't if you try to take everything then your wines get heavier too big and we wanted to maintain a certain amount of elegance but like I said, our wine's always been power and intensity. So it's it's sort of got the best of both worlds. I really think that that's... One of, one of the other things we do is I really feel strongly about the seed is an important part of the fermentation. And one of the ways to not have tannin in your wine is you can press it off sweet and minimize the interaction with the skins and the seeds. But because the vine puts so much energy into that seed for reproduction, I feel like that's something we got to capture in the wine. So the extended maceration really allows us to get the seed flavors and that's where you get your graphite and your your sort of like a beautiful like it's called bitterness but it's way more delicious than than that sounds
0: because sometimes i think graphite's like a wood signature but you're saying it's also a seed note yeah
1: absolutely and uh also it could be a reduction note i'm not afraid of having some reduction why i think that's an important part uh, again like with the piercing theory is like having a little bit of everything is important like we would never add copper to our wines uh, because we wouldn't want to strip them. I mean, strip we'll do, them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think just the wine, our, our site in general likes to be reductive. So when I rack it occasionally, it's only because it's gone, going too far. And that just freshens up and gives it the air it needs.
0: So even with the reductive site and some biodynamic principles, which sometimes people say causes reduction, you don't mm-hmm. want to add copper to strip the reduction because it'll strip other stuff. And you're not doing a ton of racking
1: no and uh the the reduction in almost all years is is very light it's it's not uh it doesn't overpower but even if you get a reductive vintage it's not it's not the end of the world it's really scary for a while and this is really what i picked up with abe and and the consgard as well you sit through and you're you're confident that it's all going to work out and so the initial compound of reduction is very simple and and sort of overpowering and then as it complexes within the wine it becomes quite interesting and a lot of uh, the reasons White Burgundy is so good is because of reduction. The reason the Consguard's Judge Chardonnay is so good is because of the reduction. So I really felt like it's, again, you, you, if you're striving for perfection of no nothing that challenges you, then you get a very simple wine that doesn't, uh, doesn't seem that exciting. So you barrel it down direct from tank. Yeah, so I like to uh, split it down from tank. You go from the two different valves and you put it into barrels based on how it comes out of the tank. So you essentially get different wines in each barrel. We don't use any of the press wine. That's one of the things, even though I'm being relatively gentle, the, uh, the wine is fully tannic, fully powerful, definitely built to last. So we but don't, uh, without the press, exactly without the press. And I've always, I've, I've had the, the arguments with people about, Oh, well, the pre- in France, the press is the best part or whatever. And we've made it separately. We've done those experimentations and I don't get it i think it's again it's it's part of that mid palate it can help but it's uh it's just too rough and too too sort of dirty in my mind
0: and kind of adds different kind of density that can be like
1: yeah kind and of heavy and in california where we don't need any more density we've we've gone too far down that path and bringing wine back to tasting tasting like wine is important i mean i can have dessert time, but i don't want to have that with my cabernet so you age it for, what, 24 months in wood? Yeah, it's a 18 to 24, depending. And we'll make those decisions based on how it's matured and certain vintages get more, certain less. And then we'll bottle it and put it into storage for a year. I, I would love to age it for even longer. But uh, as I as you know, we we had to start selling at some point. So we, we then encourage people to lay it down and keep it, hopefully, as, as long as they want. I'm pretty convinced that... For our Cabernets, about 10 years is when I start really getting excited about where their age is at. And then I think beyond that, 30, 40 plus years is is sort of the goal. You know, you have
0: about 100 years of crab and, mm-hmm. you know, a good 50 years of
1: Mandavi. How do they influence what you're up to? Uh, very deeply. Starting with crab, you had a, a Ibn uh in here from South Africa. And Donnie brought up a point which... He also brought up when we saw him in Napa about people in California. The reason there's a lot of bad wine in the world is because they plant Chardonnay where Chardonnay shouldn't be planted or Cabernet. And just kind of what they can market is what they plant. And what Crab did for our area is he he had the largest vine collection, not only in the U.S., but probably the world after the Gardens of Luxembourg got Phylloxera in France. And uh, so what he ended up doing is bringing in 400 plus varieties and experimenting to see what was best in our soil of, of our of our own vineyards. And in the eighteen hundreds, his prediction was Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Vert, Petit Verdot, Mondus or Rafasco, whichever whichever one his it was his own variety called Crabs Black Burgundy, which turned out to later be one or the other. And uh, he suggested that back then and we still haven't people still haven't figured it out, but you start to realize like there's no Merlot planted in Tokalon anymore because it doesn't do well there for whatever reason, and that kind of history is incredibly important. You look through the legacy of the people and who's had an effect on your property, and you realize that they build the foundations. Like even within our family, like the decisions our grandparents made or and our great grandparents are still relevant today because we're farming the grapes that they planted. I recently was reading about a uh, it was in Dan Barber's The Third Plate. It was a Mennonite belief that he was talking about regarding the philosophy of raising a child. And when I read this, it was the first time that ever put to words what I'm dealing with, with our family. And that was, they believed that raising a child is not something that begins at birth or even conception, but it's something that begins a hundred years prior when uh, you start shaping the environment that that child will be raised in. And when I read that, it was one of the, another one of those important, powerful moments, because I realized that our great-grandparents and our grandparents have been raising this vineyard for this moment for us. And I didn't get it when I was younger because our grandmother used to pull us aside and say, it's our dream that someday wine could be made from this property. That would, be, that would make us both so happy. And uh, that was repeated throughout our youth. And you just kind of rub it off and say, okay, whatever, I didn't, that sounds cool, maybe someday. But then being as involved as I am now and farming the same vines with my own hands like my granddad used to do, it really, that power resonates. And I, I totally feel like they put us in a position to make mature vineyard wine, which is such a rarity nowadays. You look at friends of mine who are developing properties and they're basically doing it for their children and their grandchildren. This the 25 years or whatever it's going to take to get a, a mature vine off of that property. And to be honest, even our, we think our 40 year old vines are reaching their peak now uh, as in finally making it. So it's an incredible investment, a multi-generational investment.
0: And what about Bob Mandavi's influence during that
1: period of time? What, how do you think that that has set the course that you're on today? He's been incredibly powerful because everyone who has helped me and made this dream a reality is somehow connected to him and what he did. Basically, any uh, the friend who helps me with the mechanics on the tractor, uh, if I need help, with people during pruning, it's an ex-Mandavi employee who sends sends me people. It's all interconnected, and uh, so that really resonated with me in regards to trying to understand why Bob was so successful, why Mandavi was uh, was such an important aspect of the valley. I mean, he re- we we all kind of know it, but he really changed from 1950 plus the the way the valley is today. And uh, I was just doing a presentation where I showed a map of a wine map of Napa Valley in 1950s. And there were 14 wineries and uh, that was, that was it. And uh, now you look at a current map and there's hundreds and hundreds. You can't even, you have to zoom in to see what's going on. And he, he really changed that. And his, his influence on our family was huge because instead of taking advantage of us, he always supported us. And so the reason I feel like our vineyards still in the family, still continue his legacy. It's because he protected us. He didn't. He didn't take it. So I know, obviously, if the ever opportunity ever had to come up that it wouldn't be sold. It would have been to Bob, but he never asked. He never forced. He just made sure that we, we felt uh, secure.
0: Graham McDonald. He's continuing a new chapter in a long vineyard story at the McDonald Vineyard in Oakville. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, sir. All drink to that is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton.
1: we really feel like to make a great wine, you have to differentiate yourself. And I could copycat anyone else in the Valley and I strongly feel that that's not the right way to do it. And if you look at every great wine that's come out over the years and not necessarily from Napa, but from the world, it's because they have something different to offer. It's because they're a unique picture of of the site and not uh, sort of a flattering implication of something else.